For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The Board of Equalization meets with Governor Stitt as its chairman for the first time. The board certified more than $8.2 billion for appropriations in the next fiscal year, which begins June 30th. While it was nearly $38 million less than December, it's still almost $575 million more than last year. Neva, this has got to be good news for lawmakers and Governor Stitt. It is good news, but when you think about the fact that state agencies have already given uh, uh, increased requests over a billion dollars, $33 million in in requests for additional uh, supplemental appropriations. I mean, there's a lot to fight over still. And I think what did happen is that the governor has made it very clear what he sees as the priorities he would like for for those dollars. And uh, when he talks about $200 million for the rainy day fund, taking it out, and then you hear the House AMB chair, uh, Kevin Wallace, talk about that perhaps 10%, more like $50 million, uh, might be uh, a number that he would throw out there as something uh, to go into the rainy day fund. You can see that there's lots of give and take still to the, uh, uh, to the overall equation and what that's really going to look like at the end. I think what we're seeing is just this beginning of a rollout of the discussion back and forth and all of the parties being able to kind of put their two cents in. Yeah, but Ryan, this is basically when the budget talks start. Well, they, they start, and, you know, they typically don't end until, you know, the last week of, le- of the legislative session in May. So, I mean, this is kind of our base number. And I think Neva's right. Good news up front, but there's still some concern. I mean, what, what we are looking at here is instead of a shortfall, which is what legislative uh, leaders have been looking at for years uh, in the past, we have an actual surplus this year of, of funds to come in. And a lot of that has to do with revenue packages that were passed last year that put more money into the general revenue fund. You know, Governor Stitt's right to say that a lot of this is already obligated. You know, so you know, we shouldn't look at this $500-plus and think that, well, we've got $500-plus to expend. A lot of that is already earmarked. It's already appropriated. That part of the budget process is done. But when we look at you know, the agency requests that Neva mentioned, those agency requests aren't to put uh, you know, icing on top of the cake. They're trying to, to build the cake back. I mean, we have cut agencies so much. And we talked last week about the shortage, <clears throat> the teacher shortfall, mm-hmm. uh, the crisis that we're facing here in Oklahoma. If you, I think we should start looking a little deeper than that to support staff, cafeteria workers, janitorial staff. I'm the grandson of a cafeteria worker. You know, they have uh, the idea that uh, when we look at what's going to be left over of this, the idea that we're going to be able to put money, more money into the classrooms, more money into teacher salaries, more money into support salaries, or other public employees, that looks to be in jeopardy right now. And I think it's incredibly important to remember that where we're at right now, even though the budget looks better, it's still 10% below where we were 10 years ago when we adjust for inflation. You know, and I think it's interesting that 200 plus, 237 million that's already obligated, when you take that out, if you talk about the fact that uh, the the Speaker of the House and the Governor have kind of doubled down on this $1,200 additional pay raise for teachers. Uh, Senate seems to be a little less uh, enthusiastically coming on quite as, as strongly. When you look at those, I mean, the number, the dollar figure then left is under $100 million that everyone is fighting, you know, fighting to see where those dollars go. And you already have cabinet members who are saying we need some additional uh, things uh, on the table, such as uh, this uh, uh, basically quick fund so that they can go out and as they're trying to recruit and bring uh, industry and business businesses in that they've got uh, they've got access to funds uh, other uh, you know some other uh, uh, innovative uh, 
digital technology funds and other things that they're talking about to incentivize agencies to to get more aggressive in that area. So it really is going to be, uh, I think this, uh, um, the the honeymoon is going to be quickly over and now we're going to be into the weeds of uh, how do we, uh, how do we go back and forth? And when you have the House uh, Democratic leader, uh, leadership basically saying, look, our caucus wants all the money spent. We don't want any in the savings account. I think that that, that, that clearly is going to be a very partisan divide that's going to uh, uh, cause some angst back and forth as, the, as these discussions go forward. And, it, and it's difficult to forecast a lot of this stuff, but when we look, but we're being told right now by, by the folks that, that are looking at markets, not just in Oklahoma, but globally, mm-hmm. that we should anticipate that the revenue that we're seeing right now might not increase for the 2020 fiscal year. So, you know, we, we may continue to see some small increases, but we could uh, we could very well end up in a situation where budget growth or revenue growth is flat or begins to taper off because of you know falling oil and gas prices or, or any number of areas where we uh, depend heavily upon for and to I get our revenue. And I think when you have a governor who is being very uh, emphatic about what he wants to see himself uh, in terms of uh, how this money's being spent, uh, I think that two hundred million dollars that he wants to see go go into the rainy day fund. I mean, he's not going to let that uh, just zero out and say okay we're not going to do that at all. There's going to be a give and take, and he clearly is going to be a very uh, aggressive uh, part of the uh, the process in, the, in this budget process, he and his team and his cabinet, in, uh, you know, helping to shape this. So it won't be, I don't think it will be a passive uh, uh, proposition at all. I think, I think they will see, at least at this point, it appears the governor very engaged in this process from day one. And he probably won't keep all $200 million of that. I think that he'll get some of it up. I mean, some of it may go to class start high spending. so you can negotiate yeah. and, but i mean you know we look at things like the department of corrections they're in a real bind as well i mean state agencies like i've said you know we're we're still they're still suffering from years and years and years of cuts uh and so trying to absorb those while we're banking 200 million dollars away that's that's going to give a lot of folks heartburn a senate panel passes a measure to expand health care to low-income oklahomans Rather than expanding Medicaid through Affordable Care Act, Senate Bill 605 asks the Trump administration for a waiver to expand Insure Oklahoma to use federal funds to expand health care through private insurers. Ryan, how does Senator Greg McCourty's bill compare with expanding Medicaid? Well, so if we look at what this would, I mean, it would essentially, instead of having a public option that folks would be able to participate in that would be ostensibly run to the Oklahoma Health Care Authority, people would just automatically be able to be enrolled in Medicaid, what we've seen in Medicaid expansions in other states. This would allow people to, through their employers or through, if they're self-insured or temporary un, temporarily unemployed, be able to have subsidized coverage through the private marketplace. This is not this is not what I would say would be a perfect plan. We've seen it unroll in places like Arkansas and I believe Indiana to some success. Uh, they've they've re- dramatically reduced the number of uninsured in those states. Um, I, I don't think that it's a substitute for creating a more public option where you've got folks being able to participate in Medicaid in the state of Oklahoma. One of the other concerns that I think that uh, is on a parallel track with this is that there are a number of bills in the legislature that would under some rules that have been uh, implemented by the Trump administration that would allow states to begin to water down what private policies have to cover in terms of pre-existing conditions. They might be able to raise rates on individuals based on geography, based on age, based on gender. You know, so there are some pl- the the rights that were afforded under the Affordable Care Act. You know, could be watered down under these private policies. So if we turn it entirely over to the private marketplace, we may not end up in a situation where people are getting the same kind of insurance they would get under pure Medicaid expansion. But that said, 
this is a, a big step forward in, in having this conversation about bringing federal dollars in to invest in healthcare in Oklahoma. Neva? I think that's right. I think, uh, I think when you have a situation where it's, it's not a non-starter, but there is a discussion point to, to uh, launch from, I think it at least uh, gives, uh, uh, gives rise to the expectation that maybe something can move in this direction. And it's a long way from happening, clearly. Some would suggest that this is, um, uh, this is kind of the, the, the beginning point, and it may well not uh, happen this session in any fashion, but may move into next session. But at least the conversation moves forward. The governor has said, interestingly, I mean, he said that he might be open, as we've talked about, to uh, expansion. But he's also made it very clear that he's not going to give, uh, he's not going to do that uh, if the uh, he's not given authority to uh, make his selection for the health care authority director. So I think, uh, again, it's this give and take of having some leverage in the conversation of where it moves forward. And I think when you look at uh, Medicaid expansion, the fact that there has been no real appetite among Republican lawmakers uh, uh, and uh, and the former governor uh, uh, Mary, uh, during Mary Fallon's uh, uh, tenure uh, to really have this discussion at all, I think that the fact that Senator McCourtney and others have worked very hard to get this to a place where there are some specifics and some uh, and some uh, real ob- objective ideas to, 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 to look at, and look at it with uh, the backdrop of where has it worked and where has it not worked well in other states. Not just kind of take an Arkansas model or an Indiana model or any other model, but look at, uh, look at other states where they're being even more, uh, you know, more creative. I think uh, in, the, in the instance of, uh, I believe it's North Carolina, uh, where, they're, where they're really kind of reshaping the whole notion of this, uh, uh, the Medicaid dollars and what they can do with it and, and, and trying to be much more innovative than we've seen in the past. Hopefully Oklahoma in this discussion will take that approach. One of the things that interested me when I was listening to Senator McCourtney talk about this bill was that it would take the onus off of the state and put it onto private companies, which sounds great for the state. Unfortunately, then you get the situation where a private company goes, well, then I'm not going to do that. And we've already lost almost all of our insurers when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. Or if they do do it, they do it in a way that waters down that policy that it's basically or virtually meaningless unless it's a catastrophic coverage, right? You know, so, you know, the, you know, being able to you know, get your primary care, your routine uh, medical care, that you know, preventative care, the things that keep you healthy before you have a catastrophic event, you know, those could be watered down or could be cost prohibitive. You know, some other thing, you know, the, one of the biggest arguments that we've heard against this from folks is, well, what if the federal government takes the money away? What if they stop doing the Medicaid match? This has a provision in it that would allow the state nine months to come back and amend that contract with the federal government if they take that money away. And, I, you know, this may be a starting point uh, for this legislative session where, you know, maybe they would think about legislation next year. But uh, what, what I'm hearing right now is that if the legislature doesn't do something this year, there's an independent group that's prepared to go out and get signatures and put this on a ballot and allow probably more str- expanding, Medicaid. Yeah, yeah, expanding Medicaid, put a ballot measure in front of the voters that would be a more pure Medicaid expansion measure. So, you know, there there is some outside pressure on the legislature to do that. If they want to do this and do it within Insure Oklahoma, model it after either North Carolina, Arkansas. Arkansas, we've had several years. Uh, Indiana just did their deal in 2018. So we've got some models there. If the legislature wants to do it through the private sector, this, I think, is their one shot to do it before 
voters would have an opportunity on more pure Medicaid expansion. And, and and if the voters do ultimately get this option of making a decision up or down, it's a dicey proposition because if it goes down, I mean, it really sets that conversation back from a legislative standpoint for years, if not decades. So, I mean, this has been, I mean, we've seen this all the way back to, what was it, 2006 when Senator Crane got uh, got the, uh, uh, the idea out of uh, committee um, and then basically it was DOA when it got tagged as uh, just a, a, a full-blown Obamacare. And so the, the, the whole notion of where the need is versus where the political, you know, the real political stigma to this is, I think they've got to find a way to navigate through this. And, and clearly, I would applaud Senator McCourtney for uh, being very, uh, uh, very diligent to move it to the point where we're having this conversation today. If you would have told me that a Republican majority legislature and a Republican legislator from Ada would be carrying anything that resembles Medicaid expansion two or three years ago, I, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, this, this is a, a real serious conversation and folks are approaching it like grown-ups for the most part and you know hopefully whatever comes out the other end of this means that more Oklahomans have health insurance a bill allowing anyone over 21 to carry a gun without a permit or training moves a step closer to the governor's desk after flying through the house last week it's now heading to the full Senate uh, the con- what's called constitutional carry after passing the Senate Appropriations Committee on Wednesday Nevo I just I what's the hurry here well, I, I, I think that uh, clearly most uh, lawmakers have their minds uh, made up on this. I think it is uh, early bills. There's always one or two that uh, kind of get on the fast track and move through. I think in this instance, uh, the governor's made it clear that uh, a bill like this hitting his desk will be signed very quickly. And I think uh, I think what uh, I would anticipate is early next week, it, in fact, we'll make it through the process, make it to the governor's desk, and may well indeed be the first bill that Governor Stitt signs uh, in office. So uh, uh, I think the the bill itself clearly has worked out a lot of the sticking points uh, that uh, many had concerns with. So I think from a from a majority perspective, uh, not only Republicans in the House and Senate, the Republican governor, but the public at large seems to be uh, strongly behind this particular bill. And I think we'll see, I think we will see uh, passage and and have it become law. Right. First, again, I'm a broken record here, but this is not constitutional carry. It's an incredibly liberal carrying policy that allows people to carry without a license, without requirements on, on background checks, if you're buying from an individual cell, all these things, it opens up a huge door. It's an incredibly liberal gun policy uh, in that regard. It's not constitutional carry. If they think it's constitutional carry, start carrying it in places right now without abiding by those restrictions. Have a police officer cite you. Go fight that in court or go to court and say, I'm afraid of getting cited mm-hmm. and, and challenge it in court. And so the Second Amendment clearly says that these regulations and restrictions that Oklahoma currently has violate the Second Amendment. That would be constitutional carry. Um, <clears throat> I think that there are some political optics of why they want this on the governor's desk first. It makes sense that, you know, if he's he's going to try to, you know, throw some red meat to the base here. I think that if you look at the other legislation that's being fast-tracked right now, it's the, you know, the Unity Medical Cannabis legislation that would create some regulation there. I think that there's some concern that the first bill that the governor signs <laughs> is probably a gun bill instead of a marijuana bill. Uh, you know, whether, fair, that's, fair point. whether that makes sense or not, you know, that's just an assumption that I, I'm making. The other thing is that when we start to begin to look at the carve-outs that are being added to this bill, uh, there's a carve-out now being contemplated for the gathering space in Tulsa. There's a carve-out by the NBA. And so if 
Why do you think that they're using their considerable lobbying power to say that they need to keep guns out of these spaces? I think it's because they recognize that having unregulated, unrestricted gun possession in these places is dangerous. What I wish would happen would be if the the NBA or college campuses or the other folks that are are lobbying for carve-outs in this uh, so-called constitutional carry, in this very liberal carrying measure, if instead of lobbying for these carve-outs, if they really believe that it's dangerous to have these guns in their backyard, at their NBA arenas or on their college campuses, then surely that it's dangerous elsewhere, whether it's on the street in front of KOSU radio or uh, in the parking lot of the state Capitol, that's where their lobbying needs to be. They need to be talking about where this is dangerous everywhere and trying to kill the bill in its entirety instead of just lobbying for carve outs. And it's, and this is a permitless carry bill is really what, what we're talking about. It's a bill that allows a, a a, per, a person to be able to carry a firearm without a permit or without training. Uh, but these carve-outs allow for the concerns to be addressed rather than it be just either-or proposition to try to intelligently deal with many of the issues that have confronted this bill from day one. And as they have worked through these, I think what we have seen is a real strong effort to try to find something where uh, the majority of all parties can be, you know, can be satisfied with the end result. So I think this is a bill that uh, its time has come. I think the next bill that you mentioned probably will, uh, probably in all likelihood, may be the second bill on the governor's desk. Uh, and I, I think this process is a healthy process. And frankly, uh, um, I think it it will be interesting to see once we get past these two, uh, what happens from here on in terms of the next the next major bills that hit his desk. And Ryan, this is not a revolutionary bill. The 15 other states have this and it's not That's increased right. the, the gun violence or anything like that. So it's it's not, if everyone says, oh, you're going to do this and people are just going to be on the streets shooting each other, but other states have passed this bill. But if you look at numbers, I think if you look at the statistics, the statistics, statistics show that whenever you have more guns in a given area, you're going to have more gun violence. Uh, and when I look at Oklahoma right now, we have a lot of untreated, undiagnosed mental illness. We have, uh, and we have a whole lot of guns and putting more guns in the hands of individuals where they can carry them unrestricted, unlicensed to me just seems to be a recipe for disaster. Um, so that's, you know, that's my, that's my concern. And it is, I mean, we, we it's talk a constitutional about, issue. We, we look at the, look at the two bills that the governor is going to sign. Probably the first two bills that he's going to sign <clears throat> a, a gun bill and uh, a marijuana bill. So, so weed and guns, welcome to 2019, Oklahoma. This is, <laughs> this is where we're at. A bill to crack down on four-day school weeks passes out of the Senate Education Committee. SB 441 passed on to the full House by a vote of 11 to 6. But schools can stay at four-day weeks if they can prove the schedules aren't negatively impacting student achievement and they save the local district money. Ryan, what do you think of this bill? You know, I think that it's, what what, what they're doing is they're, ta- they're talking about how they're going to measure the mandatory number of uh, school days or, or, or curriculum uh, that individual students have to get in order for the school to, to meet the, the state minimums. And so what this would do is it would change it from hours to days. And by changing, changing it to days instead of hours, you know, school districts are arguing uh, and, and uh, education lobbyists are arguing that it takes away a lot of discretion that <clears throat> local school districts need in order to be able to you know, account for things like weather. Uh, you know, you heard that the on whenever this bill was being debated, 
uh, that the entire reason that a lot of these school districts went to four days was as a political ploy to try to uh, force the issue uh, during the last legislative session to create this huge talking point that went national that said Oklahoma schools are so underfunded that they had to go to four day school weeks. Um, you know, so I don't think that that's the case. I think that these school districts did that because they felt that they needed to. Uh, I do think that they're this year we are having a better conversation than we did last year about four-day school weeks in that is it actual uh, is it actually creating some sort of pedagogical uh, negative impact on students you know is there learning uh, day in, or is there learning uh, school you're affected by going to these four four-day school weeks that's an important conversation you know I think that um, the political ploy here is that the Republican caucus at the beginning of the year in the Senate said we want to go back to five-day school weeks. We don't like this black eye of the four-day school week. And you know you can say that all you want, but really the issue is funding. So if you want to make that your imperative, then you got to back it up with some funding, and in particular classroom funding. And as we talked about earlier with the, the revenue that we're looking at, that's going to be a difficult uh, proposition for this session. Neva, the irony of this is this actually started in 2009 when the Republicans pushed for hours instead of days. I think it was actually Representative Calvi. I remember watching on debate for this, on the House floor. So it, they're kind of erasing, trying to erase a mistake they made back in, in 2009. Well, and, and there, is this, there is this difference of opinion on, on the issue to this extent. I think uh, the Senate uh, Republican Caucus made this one of their kind of five major points that they wanted to advance quickly uh, in this session. But on the House side, you don't see a lot of enthusiasm, even among Republican leadership. You're not hearing the, the push on the House side. I mean, it's more the local control and the, uh, really leaving it uh, leaving it there as opposed to making this more overarching uh, uh reach on it. And I think when you take into consideration, just like with, with uh, Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister, I mean, she clearly is a strong advocate for the five-day school week uh, and uh, uh, articulates her points on that, S some of which you just mentioned, uh, Ryan, in terms of uh, uh, what is best for the child, I mm -hmm. mean, and the learning experience in the classroom. So I think that infused into whether we have the um, uh, the four-day week or the five-day week, the, clearly in this particular Senate bill, they have made an allowance to uh, let these uh, the, these school districts, I think there are 92 districts out of the 500-plus mm -hmm. school districts in the state that have gone this direction. So it's a significant number. Uh, whether out of that number all of them would uh, be able to pass the muster of, of uh, the criteria set to get them an exemption, I don't know. But the bigger question is, if we're talking about this plus class additional classroom funding, th then you have to really start to get everybody to the table and figure out what does that really look like? Because right now, the only way you, you get those dollars is through the funding formula uh, into these districts. That does that get it to the classrooms and what does that look like? So uh, to advocate for a teacher pay raise and more, and more classroom uh, funding, they've got to figure out how to, how to make all of those dollars work, you know, the numbers work, first of all, but how do you get the expectations and, and the results that you're really looking for? And I think that's that's part of this larger conversation that everybody's still really grappling with. And of course, I, all these bills are it's still in their, their preliminary stage, yeah. too. So. I think Neva raises an interesting point. I, I just don't know the answer to this, but it would it'd be interesting to, to find out. I'm sure someone knows, but if you look at those 90, is it 92? 92, 92, the 92, 92 school districts 92. that are four-day week right now, if you 
looked at the requirements to get the exemption that's included in this bill, how many of them would currently qualify for that? I, I just don't know the answer to that. I don't but, either, but and I haven't be, seen an anything on that, but it would be a, and, and an important part of the equation, I think, in this conversation. And they might not have done any numbers yet because they weren't sure if they were going to ask for that. But certainly, I know a lot of them did say, we went to this because we were losing money and this allowed us to recruit teachers, which meant helping our students do better. So uh, it's all going to probably be more likely closer when this gets to, to the governor's desk. Yeah. Leaders in the state Senate say they won't hear a bill to criminalize abortion. Senate Health Committee Chairman Jason Smalley and President Pro Tem Greg Treat have come out against SB 13 reclassifying abortion as murder. The reason was less about their stance against abortion and more about not wanting to deal with a bill which would likely be declared unconstitutional. Neva, what do you think of this decision? Well, I think uh, I, th- I think certainly that uh, Senator Smalley made made it clear up front what his intentions were with this bill and why. I mean, it, that it's not a discussion of, you know, are we, you know, uh, do we support the, the concept of, of legalized abortion or not? I mean, or, or criminalizing it or not, but rather the issue of uh, having having this come before that committee and actually a, a vote being taken. Um, at this point, it, I think it's still a little bit uh, up in the air what's going to happen just because of the pressure that's being placed on mm-hmm. S- Senator Smalley in particular. I mean, uh, the the fact that billboards have been taken out, including one in his district that basically says, here's the guy that's standing in the way of, uh, you know, of being able to uh, basically uh, eliminate abortion in our state and really sensationalizing this and getting the passion and, and the intensity up at a at a high high level uh, uh, engaging you know people's pastors and others and you know tossing them into this political uh, uh, powder keg is uh, is is very difficult so I think it's a timeline issue I mean if it goes through the end of next week I mean the the reality is that the clock will have run out mm-hmm. they will not be able to hear it uh, can they hold hold this off or will there be uh, uh, kind of the uh, uh, the forceful winds that all of a sudden come kind of take it a different direction, I don't know. I mean, I think right now, uh, Senator Smalley, uh, if he stands where, his, where he's made his position, uh, if, uh, if the leadership and Senator Treat and others uh, back that up, then I would think that, uh, that it's a moot point and it's over. But, you know, we've all, as we've seen and watched many, many times, about the time we think something's over, then all of a sudden there's a curveball and we're into a whole new ballgame. Right. Well, and, you know, I, uh, let's, it's, it's premature to, to pat Senator Smalley on the back just yet. We'll see what happens with this pressure that's happening. And, and, and it is. It's, it's, it's intense pressure. Uh, and he's being asked to do something. And we talked about political stunts. Bills like this, Senator Silk, you know, whether he realizes it or not, he is just a he is just a pawn and a very big political stunt here because this bill, if he passed this bill, it would automatically be declared unconstitutional and the state would absorb the litigation cost and we, we, we would be right back at this again. We've talked a few times uh, this uh, on this program about this legislative session and there seems to be a little bit more decorum between the Republicans and the Democrats. There seems to be a, a, a real a real ideal and an emphasis on cooperating. When you put these bills uh, in front of a legislative committee and you have these fights, you, you are drawing lines in the sand. And if you're going to draw those lines in the sand, you know, everybody knows where I'm at on this. I, I support <laughs> a woman's right to choose and, and have been to court to, to protect that. And we'll go to court again to protect that. But if you're we, asking if other lawmakers to make but if, that But choice. if we ask lawmakers 
to go into these committees and pass these bills, especially when we know that they're going to be immediately declared unconstitutional, you're creating divisions in that legislative body that are just totally unnecessary. Particularly when you're creating division on an issue where on both sides they agree uh, they agree with where they are on the point. The issue, as you say, is the constitutional right. question. Yeah. And so that really kind of throws it into a whole different arena and unfortunately uh, makes the situation long term much more toxic yes. for the for the legislative environment. Especially when you're talking about lawmakers who have pledged and said, I'm going to defend the Constitution. That's I'm right. To- and we've got but there have been two bills that I think that, that have passed out. Uh, one. Uh, both of them, I think, are, are of questionable constitutionality. One, I think, is just patently unconstitutional. That's House Bill 1182. That passed out of a House committee, and that would that would uh, take away a physician's medical license in the event that they perform abortions. I mean, that's that's just patently unconstitutional. And so, you know, we're we're seeing at least in the that Senate, was in the House side, that was, that was in the House side. side. In the Senate, I think we're beginning to see some real leadership sitting at the table and saying, "Listen, we're not going to create this toxic environment just so Senator Silk can go back home and have some mail pieces that says that he's." The, the state's biggest defender of, of the unborn, because that's really what this is about. At the end of the day, whatever he wants to do, he's not going to win in the court. And I think Senate leadership understands and that. And I think the important thing with Republicans in the legislature overall is the recognition that Oklahoma has been a strong pro-life state with strong pro-life legislation uh, having moved through and been signed year in and year out for decades, and that has not changed. So uh, to, to have it sidetracked sometimes with these kind of conversations uh, that that really ultimately go nowhere uh, doesn't serve a good purpose in, in reminding folks really where we are as a state on this issue. And we're beginning to see some movement on talking about health care for women in rural areas, but when we talk about also sex education, fact-based, evidence-based sex education, we're seeing some traction on that as well. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.